Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, I haven't been doing many podcasts lately. I've been, (laughs) I have a lot of excuses, but I'm not going to bore you with them. But I do have content that I created on my Atlantic Crossing this year, and I'm going to put out one of them today. This is an interview with Dylan McCaster. And it took a while, but I just, (laughs) after talking to Dylan during this podcast, we both realized that he had been on the podcast several years earlier. And at that time, it was just a Skype interview. This time, it was sitting in the cockpit of my boat and having a discussion with him. The quality of the audio is pretty bad for the first six minutes, and then it clears up. I had the gain turned up too much on my handheld microphone uh, or recorder, the Zoom, little Zoom recorder that I used for this. And uh, about six minutes in, I realized it, and we adjusted it, and the quality is quite a bit better after that. I did not do much editing for this podcast. I just wanted to get it out there and get something up. If you have comments, thoughts, or questions, please write me, franz1 at medsailor.com. Also, you need to know I'm planning on selling my boat in the next couple years for various reasons. I turn 70 tomorrow. Today is July 11th. Actually, today's July 10th. I turned 70 in two days. And it's getting harder for me to maintain the boat in the way I like to maintain it. So I have put a web page up at the website, medsailor.com, where it goes into detail on my Lyle Hess design, Sam Moore's Bristol Channel Cutter. If you're interested, go to the website. If you want to take a look at the boat, write me. If you want to sail on the boat, write me as well. And I will give you my phone number and we will talk. Anyway, with no further ado, let's get on to this interview. Well, welcome back to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. We are way beyond today. We are, it's, uh, what is it, February 8th, 2023. I am in Cape Verde. I'll give a full report on the sail down from Almiramar, Spain a little later, but this is a marina that is... uh, really only for true blue water sailors. You're not seeing shiny, shiny clean boats here. You see the boats that are in this marina. These, these are real sailors. I go to marinas in the United States and other places, and you see all these nice, shiny, shiny clean boats with nothing on the handrails or, or the, the lifelines, nothing on the lifelines, nothing hanging in the boat. And those are marina sailors. Right here, I'm looking around this marina. <laughs> the only reason you come here is because you're probably on your way to the Caribbean. And so we worked our way down from Almiramar out through the Straits of Gibraltar and uh, got some pretty rough seas and rough wind from uh, from Gibraltar down to Lanzarote and then uh, then a nine-day, or actually an eight-day passage from Lanzarote down to uh, Cape Verde. Yesterday, Dylan, last name again, Dylan. McGaster. Yesterday, Dylan McGaster came by the boat and said hello. And uh, Dylan's from the United States. Where are you from, Dylan? 
originally from Kansas City. Originally from Kansas City. And I'm going to just hand this microphone over to Dylan and sort of ask him questions in the background. So you, the audio quality is not going to be up to standard because this is my little handheld uh, Zoom recorder. But uh, that's what I have with me today. And this is how I used to do all my podcasts with this little recorder. But now we have the studio in the city and... Uh, you're not used to this quality audio. There's probably some music you might hear in the background. There's a boat right next to me, and there's a little story to this boat. It's a, what is that, what do you say, Dylan? What do you think the length of that is? Maybe 70 feet, 60 feet? Yeah. 60 yeah, feet? Say, yeah, 19 meters probably. 19 meters, I think, in feet, 60 feet. The name of the boat is Raffles Light. And I heard a story about this boat. Some, there's about four people on this boat sanding and scraping and scrubbing and local local people doing all this labor on this boat. And it'll look gorgeous when it's done, but it looks like a fiberglass boat with a lot of, uh, a lot of wood trim on it. Yeah. it look, it's got, uh, is that a pelican or some sort of bird on the front of it for a, for a what is that? The, what's the name of that part on the boat? Anyway, the very bow of the boat. Figurehead. Figurehead figurehead but what i heard is this boat was uh, is owned by somebody from new york and it was down in the caribbean they had a professional captain and and uh, crew um captain and mate uh running this boat the captain was out of town and the mate went to town and came back and the boat was gone and this is in the caribbean and it disappeared nobody could find it Apparently the boat was used for drug running. They found it in the Mediterranean, somewhere in the Mediterranean. I don't know the details of where they found it in the Mediterranean. And not only did they use it to run drugs, they also stripped everything out from the inside of the boat, all the uh, instruments, all the stoves, everything from the inside of the boat. Now, I don't know why they brought it down to Cape Verde to refit it, but that's what it's doing here. And there's a crew on this boat every day working on it, probably eight hours a day. But uh, that's sort of the boat you see here. You see a lot of people coming around, real blue water sailors, and Dylan is one of them. Now, Dylan, I want you to tell us about your story. I'll sort of question you in the background, so I'm going to hand the microphone over to you. Perfect. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on the podcast. And what you were saying before about this uh, marina and this harbor being a place for only blue water sailors, I thought the exact same thing when I sailed in a couple days ago. Um, because the only way you can get out here is you have to sail in the ocean yeah either either yeah seven plus days from the canary islands or i guess if you're coming from africa like it'd be a little bit closer but no nobody really comes down that coast of africa down western sahara and all that um so yeah everybody out here is they know how to sail now, what, tell us, you, you, you have your own boat. Tell us how you acquired your boat and what you've been doing now. Yeah, so I have a 1979 Morgan 38-2, um, and I bought that boat in Barcelona. The story behind purchasing the boat is <laughs> it's a, different than most people. Okay. I, <laughs> I actually came across the, I found the boat on the Internet, um, Back in 2018 is when I bought the boat, and in, like, November of 2017, I met a guy named Eddie Landis, who built his own ferro cement boat back in the 70s. It took him about a decade, 
and he was telling me about what it was like traveling in America back in the 60s. Just look at your levels there for a second. Oh, okay. You might need to turn down the gain a little bit, but go ahead, because you're talking a little louder. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll turn ahead. it down a little bit. We're just adjusting the volume, so I'm not going to edit this out anyway, yeah. so go ahead. My apologies. That's all right. Um, he was telling me about uh, traveling in America in the 60s in a, uh, like a, a milk truck, like a, or a mail truck, kind of like one of those UPS trucks. And he, he had kind of built it out, had a little home in it, and he was traveling with his like, wife and his kid. And his baby at the time, they had in the front seat, they just had a swing in the middle, and that's where they kept their kid. Um, but this is back in the 60s before seat belts are um, required and everything like that. And so he was telling me about that, and he was like, it was just complete freedom. You could do whatever you wanted. And um, there was basically like no rules or regulations around like van living at the time. And he told me that the only place you can really find that type of freedom in the world today is on the water. And it's not even it's not even quite like it was back then. Um, And so when he told me that I was living in a van at the time and I thought, well, I guess on the water is where I need to go. And I, my van, I couldn't stand up in my van. And so I was looking to upgrade to something. So it was like, well, do I go to a bus or do I go to a bigger van or do I go to a boat? And I was like, well, boat sounds like the most fun. I didn't know how to sail. So I took a five-day sailing course in Florida and then um, hopped on a ship, a cruise ship, a repositioning cruise ship that goes one way across the ocean because when they at the end of the season they need to move the the ship to a different port to do the season in a different area and of course moving an empty ship like that would be very expensive so they sell a very cheap cruise because it's one way right so you got to buy a a plane ticket to either the where it's departing from or where it arrives yeah so took one of those across to barcelona and in this whole process i made a post on reddit saying like okay I, i don't know how to sail i don't know anything about sailing, what what type of documents do I need to make this legal, how do I get a boat, all these different things. And I got a few different responses, and this one guy, who was very helpful, and he was like, and by the way, I am actually have a boat for sale. I moved on to a catamaran, and so I have my old boat for sale. And this was like in February. Uh, I didn't get to the Mediterranean until uh, May. And so we were talking back and forth, and uh, I was like, well, I'm not going to buy this boat months before I need it without ever seeing it, all that kind of stuff. So I stopped replying to the guy, and then he, a month later, like hit me up again on email and offered like half the price that he was originally asking. I was like, all right, well, now let's continue this conversation at least. And it just so happened that the cruise ship that I uh, had already bought the ticket for was landing in Barcelona, and it just so happened that he happened to be in Barcelona. So on the way there, I um, haggled the price down a little bit more, and I was like, listen, the boat doesn't have a survey. I've never seen the boat, but um, if, you, if you sell it to me for 10 grand, then I'll buy it sight unseen. I was like, 10 grand is a decent chunk of change to like risk, but I thought if it works out and it's, it sales and everything like he says it does, it's a great deal, and if it doesn't work out, all right, 10 grand, it's not the, not the worst yeah, thing. you can recover from 10 grand. It's not like 150 or something like that where you're like, ah. So, so I, I took the risk 
and one of the reasons why I was like really trusting him was because he was like, listen, this is what my plan is. I'm in Barcelona. I'm going to be sailing to Mallorca, which is like a hundred miles. Um, just basically directly South of Barcelona. Uh, so why don't you sail down to Mallorca? We'll hang out with each other for a couple days and then I'll go to Menorca and we'll kind of go our separate ways. And when he told me that, I was like, well, this guy's probably not going to sell me a boat that's going to sink if he's saying let's hang out for a week, right? So I, um, maybe two or three days before I arrived, I made the proposal for 10 grand and he accepted. And so then the cruise ship arrived on May 6th of 2018 at around 8 a.m. And by 1 p.m. I was on my boat. So it was absolutely perfect. Um, you can't, I mean, it's one of those things you can't plan for. It's just, yeah, yeah it, I consider that boat a gift from uh, existence, the universe, whatever you want to call it, God, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so that's kind of how I came about it. When I bought the boat, I only had five days sailing experience. I took that five day course. I didn't really do any sailing before that, maybe like a few hours here or there once or twice, but nothing really. Uh, and then moved on on May 6th and then on May 11th sailed to Mallorca. So, uh, was that five days later or yeah, yeah. five days later, um, did a 111 mile sail and the rest is history. The so, first year was <laughs> quite uh, difficult, had its challenges, and the boat came with plenty of issues, but it all worked out in the end. So did, did, when you sailed that 118 miles, you sailed by yourself, solo? No, so in the beginning I had, uh, there was three of us, okay. I had two crew. and Or two friends, I guess, probably. Well, I actually met them through the internet, I didn't know them before okay. the yeah the the whole story is kind of <laughs> very abnormal and I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing it like this but this is how I did it and it did work out for me um so yeah for the first uh 4 months there was 3 of us and then Jackson had to go back to Canada to finish university and then um I had people like on and off for a couple years and then in 2000 and I guess in 2019 is when I first started soloing, but it was very short, like 20-mile sales. And then in 2020, I did my first, quote-unquote, big solo sale, which was from Crete to Santorini in Greece, and that was like 97 miles, I think. Into the wind. Well, no, it was in August, and we had a westerly. Oh, wow. That's yeah, so rare. I was able to, yeah, I was able to broad reach the whole way. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was great sailing. And then from there, uh, that was my first kind of big sail. And from there, I worked my way all the way up to um, Volos in Greece, which is kind of like halfway up. So I did like 500-something miles, hopping island hopping up north. And then in 2021, it... Or, what year is it now? It's 23. 23, yeah. You're talking about COVID, <laughs> yeah. COVID issues. Uh, 2021, yeah. right in the middle of COVID then, right? Right. So I started, I did that sail to Santorini in August of 2020. And then that winter, Greece had another lockdown. And so I was 
stuck there, and then the so next. So you were stuck in Greece. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was in a on the island of Avia, uh, in a small village called Orei, and it was just me and one other one catamaran, my friend Rolf, uh, and Mariana, and we had a great time. Honestly, it was really good. There was hot springs, like a ten-minute drive away, and um, yeah, I had a Greek girlfriend at the time, and so she had a car, and so we go down to the hot springs. Like, and since we're in a village, you know, regulations don't really apply to yeah. village life. Um, and then after that, sailed around Greece for the summer, and so I guess I don't know. The dates are kind of getting mixed up. But then after that, when I left. Uh, after that summer, I really started solo sailing, and then I crossed I Ionian by myself, and I basically sailed to where we are now by myself. So let's uh, talk about, so you've been living full-time on the boat. Yeah. Then. Yeah, I haven't been back to America since I left. Okay. Yeah. So where have you been, where have you been wintering? Tell us about the winters. Well, the first winter I did in Croatia, and that was uh, eventful. I ended up changing out the engine from an old Yanmar to a new Beta Marine. And that was a whole process in Pula, Croatia, um, <laughs> which was, it gets pretty cold up in Pula. Uh, yeah, there was quite a bit of snow. And then I got put back in the water in January and then sailed south through Croatia in February, January and February. Um, and that was interesting sailing. That's stormy weather. That's oh, yeah. stormy weather that time of year. Yeah, so in Croatia they have a wind, um, which they call the bora, which is like the, the northerly wind. It comes off the mountains, yeah. and it's known to be quite fierce. And that year they had what they said was the worst bora in over 200 years. And so I was on anchor for that, and that was pretty wild. I mean, I was on anchor, and the wind was... Uh, I was the only person in this little anchorage, so it... Uh, the, the water was completely flat because, um, of course, I, I picked one that was protected. But the rails of the boat were being dunked in the water on anchor just from the wind. Um, and that's the only time I've ever experienced that. My wind gauge wasn't working at the time, so I don't know how strong the wind was. But from what I understand, that would need to be like somewhere 60 plus maybe 70 knots plus in order to to dunk your rails with no no rigging up on anchor um so that was pretty wild so were you on one anchor swinging back and forth on one anchor or did you have a couple anchors out no i just had the one what uh, kind of anchor is it i've got a what a 20 kilogram rokna so okay, rokna, yeah yeah they have a good reputation yeah it 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 worked pretty well. I mean, I was, this was still, I wasn't even a year in yet. And so I was anchored a little bit too deep. I need to look at the charts of that area again to see if there's a better anchorage that I would pick differently this time. But at the time, that's what I picked. Ended up dragging anchor at some point. Um, yeah, it all worked out fine eventually. You, but. Have, you must have an electric windlass on the boat, do you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, although that has gone out before, and <laughs> I've had to haul up the chain by hand. But not, luckily, thank God, not at that not time. Not in Abora, No, 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 no. Um, so, yeah, from there, sailed down, and then, let's see, the next winter, I, where did I do the next winter? The next winter probably would have been in Tunisia, I guess. Oh, really? You went all the way to Tunisia? Okay. Yeah, 
Yeah, so... Uh, now, were you worried about getting out of the EU or anything like that at the time? Or just or just going where you wanted to go? Well, in Croatia, it is not Schengen. Right. So that was safe. Uh, I did overstay my visa in Croatia because of the way it worked out. So I had to pay a fee for that, uh, a fine for that. But then after I paid that, they were like, you're welcome back at any time now. <laughs> so <laughs> how, how much was the fine and how far were you over? Uh, I don't remember how much it was. I was like three months over. Okay. Um, but, but it wasn't significant. So it wasn't something you really... A few hundred bucks. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember exactly. It was, I, it was less than a thousand for All sure. Right. Right. Um, nothing, nothing too crazy. But Croatia's got all sorts of different fines and fees, and they've gotten much more expensive over the last yeah, 10 are, years. Yeah, they are really getting ridiculous as far. Croatia doesn't even go on my list anymore of places to go. No, me neither. I think Croatia um, is, like, purposefully trying to price themselves out of the liveaboard market so that they only get, like, charters, charters. Yep. yeah, and uh, mega yachts. I think that that's their goal. Um, and... They're doing fine. And with how expensive Croatia is with all the different fees, when you've got Greece right there, that's, yeah. like, arguably better anyway. Don't say too much because we don't want everybody going to Greece. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Greece is, I don't know, they're too disorganized to, <laughs> to, to, to up all their prices at once. But Did you make it over to Turkey at all? A little bit, yeah. Okay. Where did you go in Turkey? Um I landed in Kusadasi. Kusadasi, yeah. Yeah, and then from there I worked my way north up into the Black Sea. Oh, okay, you went all the way up then. Like yeah, yeah, up into Istanbul, which was an interesting journey. Um, glad I didn't did it. Wouldn't do it again, just because. Did you stop by the sea, the island of Marmara? Uh, yeah. Did you go around the north side to where they have the, the, the quarries on the north side of Marmara? Uh, I sailed past them when I was coming south, oh, okay. but going north, I stopped on the southern side. Okay, yeah, there's uh, better anchorages on the southern side. Yeah, yeah, but no, I did see them because I, I did want to go check that out because that's the the stones from that are um, what, what did they use to build? I think they took them all the way to Athens, didn't they? Oh, they took them all over the place. I'm not sure if that that's not where they got the stone from Venus de Milo. That was on the island of Paros. But, but uh, yeah, they're, the, it's, the whole island is marble. It's yeah. gorgeous, yeah. Yeah, and if you're quarrying there, I mean, in order to take them to Athens, it's perfect. It's all down current, all, all downwind, down yeah. and, yeah, it's, it's kind of the perfect place to... I mean, it's a bit far, but if you're quarrying, it's a good spot. So you went up to Istanbul and you stayed in one of those marinas up by Istanbul on the Asian side? Or where did you go once you got up there? I didn't actually go into a marina in Istanbul. Really? Uh, yeah, when I went north, I anchored on the European side over in the big tanker anchorage field. Okay. Um, anchored like as close to shore as I could. And there's no real shore access there. And so I... Um, I took the dinghy into just, the, there's, I don't even know the name of it, some little fishing harbor. Yeah, and I just docked the dinghy, didn't talk to anybody, and just went into town and uh, stayed a night in Istanbul and um, explored the, the city just for like a day or two. And then when I came back, uh, they were not particularly happy with me, <laughs> but <laughs> I was able to get my dinghy back and go back out to the boat. Uh, but then when I came south, I anchored just outside of the marina on the Asian side. And uh, that, that spot is actually fine. Uh, you can take the dinghy into the marina there. Where at? What, uh, 
Uh, I don't remember the name of it, but it's there. There's basically one like big marina on the Asian side that's just south oh, yeah, of the Bosphorus. Yeah, ACR, it's, I know the marina you're talking about. Yeah, and you can anchor outside of that marina too. I did. Okay. Yeah, right. and I, I believe so. Yeah, okay. it, it's been a few years since I've like looked at all the charts and everything there, but yeah, I, I anchored there, and then from there I went to those. There's a few islands just south of there. Anchored there for a day or two, and then uh, went back over to Greece. Okay. Um, so did you clear out of Turkey? Did you do the whole bureaucracy of clearing in and clearing out of Turkey and then clearing into Greece as well? Yeah, so uh, when I w- cleared in to Kusadasi, it was like 50 bucks or something like that to clear in. Mm-hmm. And then when I cleared out of Istanbul, because it's Istanbul, it's more expensive. But then also, it just happened to be some uh, Arabic holiday that mm-hmm. I, I didn't know about. And so then it was like double the price. So it ended up being like 300 something euros to check out. And I was like, I'm, I'm trying to leave the country. It's more expensive for me to leave the country than it was for me to enter the country. Um, yeah, so that was kind of crazy. And I had to go to the um, the big industrial like port in order to do that. I had to dock on these, you know, like 15 foot high docks. Yeah. Just so that they could look at the boat and be like, "That's the boat." Yeah, it uh, it was it was an interesting process. Um, and, and you have crew with you at the time when you're doing this, or are you doing this by yourself? Yeah, that was me and Troy. Okay. Yeah, my friend Troy. Um, from there, and then when I came south, uh, I didn't clear in because I was just kind of sailing through. Okay. Like I, I only maybe spent three days uh-huh. and it was kind of all on as long as you get, don't get caught you can do this <laughs> stuff you know yeah um yeah and then from there i went over to thessaloniki okay okay yeah and when it comes to greece i mean i've been i've spent a lot of time in greece and i've been almost everywhere in in greece that's okay. that's that's where I spent the majority of my time in the Mediterranean. So Tunisia, did you go to the marina in Tunisia or did you anchor in Tunisia then? Yeah, so when I first entered Tunisia, I went to Hamamet and I went to the marina there. This was in January of 2020. I took a trip to Portugal to do some work and paid some guy to um, do some work on the boat because it's much cheaper there. And the way it worked out, I was like, I can go, go take this trip and I'm going to end up with net more money than I will. If you stay here, and work yeah, on stay the here and work on the boat, and I don't have to do the boat work, yeah. so <laughs> it was perfect. Um, so I did that, and then when I got back, Jackson came back out. Who Jackson? It was the guy that first started with me in the very beginning. He flew out in f- uh, like late February, and then we sailed from there down to Monastir, and. Once we arrived in Monastir, we took the boat out of the water, and then like a day or two after we took the boat out of the water, uh, the whole country shut down. So then I was on land, living on the, the two of us were living on the boat, on land, in lockdown for about four months. Monastir, is that in Tunisia, or is that? Yeah, Monastir is in Tunisia, yeah. It's, it, Monastir is kind of like the main harbor that oh, okay. live aboards go to okay. you've got tunis of course in the very north but then monastir is kind of central tunisia and they've there's a really big live aboard sailor community there okay. uh, a lot of people go there to winter it's very cheap and it's decent weather 
That's yeah, it's it. out of the Schengen. It's out of the EU. Yeah, if I'm kidding. Yeah. It wasn't amazing since it was locked down, so you couldn't travel around the country. I mean, it, if you if you were to go down there, um, you know, in December, January, something like that, uh, put the boat in the marina, and then rent a car and drive, it'd be perfect because it's wintertime. The Sahara Desert is going to be as cold as it gets, which is still hot. <laughs> and uh, you get to see the country in, like, the best season that it is to see it. Um, but... Of course, it was locked down. So by the time it opened back up, we did rent a car and did a little road trip. But it was already June, so then it was like um, 45 degrees Celsius in the where we went to in the Sahara, which is like a hundred something degrees Fahrenheit. Very hot, very hot. Um, but at least we got to got to see the Sahara Desert. That was cool. And also in Tunisia, they've got a bunch of old Star Wars sets from the original Star Wars. Oh, yeah. That's where um, they they built the set for um, uh, Tatooine. So in that opening scene of the first Star Wars, where Luke Skywalker is staring at the t- the double sunset uh, with that crater in his house there, I visited that set while I was there. Okay. Yeah. Are you working the? Do you work in that industry? Well, I, um, not in like Hollywood, but I do, yeah, I do video and video for a living. I've got a YouTube channel that I run, a couple, a couple YouTube channels that I run. I've got a small company. Um, Florb is the main channel and that's F L O R B. That's a contraction of the two words floating orb. Okay. And that, um, that is tiny house tours. Alternative styles of living. Hold on. You've been on my podcast. Before. I was wondering if I had. Yeah, I've talked to you before. We, got, you were on my previous. I, I talked to you a long time ago. Yeah, Skype. I think it was a few on years Skype. ago. Yeah, yeah. On Skype. Yeah. When you told me you had a podcast, I was like, I think. I, I wonder if I've been on that one. Yeah. Because I did a, I did a now few. Now you told me floor, but I said, oh, I wouldn't think <laughs> you channel look at it. Okay. Now yeah. you actually meet in, meet face to face. Yeah. So, right. Good to meet you after yeah. this time. I, I was, yeah, at a, I was wondering, like, have I, I think I might have done that podcast, but th- that was a while ago. That yeah, was, that was uh, several years ago. Yeah. I think that was before COVID maybe. Yeah, oh yeah. Definitely before COVID. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I've got floor, which is tiny house tours and alternative styles of living, tree houses, um, boats. We've got a, an airplane home on there, domes, uh, floating homes, um, what else? anything that's not normal. And then that's the, the main company that I run. Um, and yeah, there's basically three of us full time and then... Uh, here and there we'll hire freelancers and then I've got Dylan McGaster on YouTube and Instagram and whatnot as well but that is uh, all focused more on like sailing and travel and things of that nature all right yeah you and I talked I remember now now it's coming back to me the conversation we had and I went and looked at a lot of your videos (laughs) And you did a bunch of them on sailing, too. You were doing the ones on the sailing, but you, if you haven't done many of those, have you? Well, yeah, in, in the beginning, I was putting sailing videos on Florb as well, but I found that the two different, because they're pretty different styles of content on the same channel, overall was, like, hurting the performance of the channel. So then I started a second channel. Um, but, yeah, if you go to Florb, you can find the first couple years of... I guess maybe the first year and a half 
of sailing um, in the Mediterranean on there. And then f- from there on is on Dylan McGaster. And then that, yeah, I'm kind of ramping up social medias again. Okay. Um, but the, the second channel, Dylan McGaster, with the sailing videos uh, is a little bit different now than it has been in the past. All right. Well, it's, it's good to actually make the connection. As we're sitting here talking, I thought, well, no, I've talked to you before. We've had that con- We've had some of this conversation when you said floor, but I said, I've been to that the YouTube channel, so that's cool. So t- tell me about uh, where did you win her last year? Where did you go last year to win her? Oh, I guess we are sort of in the winter right now, but year before this, I guess. Yeah. I've tried to, like, continue sailing throughout the winters, and every time it, <laughs> it just doesn't work. Uh, but uh, let's see. Well, yeah, now is, what, February. So this past few months has been all in, like, the Canary Islands. I arrived in the Canary Islands in, in the fall at some point. Um, so this past one was all in those islands, but then before that, um, the Christmas before that, I spent in Creta, in Crete, in okay. Greece, and there. Um, but I was I was still sailing at that time, so I stopped in Crete for maybe a month, and then I kept sailing. So I arrived in uh, maybe like mid no, probably December, then left in January, and just kept sailing, and and then as I was. Um, sailing up to the Ionian to cross. At one point, I was actually sailing through snow. Oh, really? Yeah, it was snowing. Did you go through the so. Corinth Canal? Um, I have before, the, but not this time. You went through, around the Peloponnese Peninsula then? Okay. Yeah, well, at, at that time, the Corinth Canal was actually still closed. Ah, because okay. so the, COVID then. No, no, no. There was um, back in 20, I think it was 2020 or maybe it was 2021. Uh, of course, there was that. So when the Suez Canal closed, right, because of that uh, ship crash, mm-hmm. uh, something, I think it was maybe an earthquake or something happened in the the Corinth Canal and, like, oh, boulders okay. fell in okay. or something. And then it took them years to clear it out because it's Greece. And <laughs> I believe the Corinth Canal is open now, but at that time it was actually still closed. Okay, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, I've been through the Corinth Canal probably four or five times but i didn't know it had ever been closed so that's news to me so that's interesting so what are your plans for this year then um well one to cross the atlantic ocean land in the caribbean somewhere and then kind of work my way up to america go back to america like i said i haven't been there and by the time i get there it'll be like five and a half years so from there pull the boat out of the water um do a little of course i'll need to do some work on the boat but, uh, yeah, I, I haven't been to America in five years, so I need to, like, go see family, go kind of sort some things out. Um, and then from there, maybe set up a, a base in Florida or something like that, or maybe continue go back down to the Caribbean. But I'll probably, you know, keep the boat in the Florida area, and so then I'll have access to the Caribbean at least. So you've been pretty much a full-time sailor for about five years now. Is it sort of... Uh... Is it losing its luster for you? Are you looking forward to being land-based again to a certain extent or or not? Not necessarily land-based. It would be nice to have a car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Having a car is very nice. Um, and also, I've, I've found that I do enjoy staying in places for longer periods of time. But I'd, I'd like that on a boat. Like, 
here, okay, in Cape Verde, I'm only going to be here for a few days and then need to sail. But um, like Grand Canaria, I got to spend a decent amount of time there. And then once you stay in one place for like a month, you actually feel like you've lived in that place. Uh, and the, the constant moving every week, I'm not a huge fan of anymore. Um, but if I could, you know, go to an island, stay there for a month or two months, and then move to the next island, that's how I would prefer to do it. Um, and within that island, you can still move anchorages, but to stay in one place and actually experience the place more uh, is nicer, in my opinion. And you also get to actually have, like, more of a routine. Um, yeah. Because the, the constant moving... Uh, it's the the day sailing because like if you do longer passages you've got your you develop your routine and your rhythm in that passage but when you're sailing for six hours and then you stop and you stay for one two days and then you sail for seven hours and then you stop and you stay for one two you you never like end up in r any real like continuous rhythm it's a you're your sleep schedule gets messed up and then, you know, everything's always different and that gets really tiring. So that's nice for, you know, a few months at a time. But when you're doing that for years at a time, it starts to just get like this. I need, I can't, I can't be moving like this all the time. It's, it's just too tiring on the brain. Okay. Okay. Well, Dylan, it's been great talking to you. Do you want to add anything before we finish the interview? We've been talking about 35 minutes now. I usually can go up to an hour on a podcast if you want to share some more experiences you've had with this. Uh, whatever you wish is your well, podcast. So. Us, uh, tell us some of your uh, your most enjoyable memories of what you've been doing over the last few years. Then. Um, in, do, do you want like places or events? Or? Whatever you want to talk about. What comes to your mind? Um, well, Or both. Or all of it. It doesn't matter. we still got plenty of time. Well, one of the things that I found really changed my experience for living on a boat was learning how to free dive. Um, and I did that in Kalamata in Greece. In, in Kalamata, they've got a really great school. I contacted um, a relatively high-level free diver and asked him, like, where is a good place to learn how to free dive in the Mediterranean? Um, because free diving, of course, you could just start, but it's a pretty good idea to do some training so that you because you know if you don't do it properly it can kill you mm -hmm. so it's one of those things that it's good to have somebody like an experienced mentor teach you the technique so that you don't die um and, and when you learn the technique it's way easier free diving is just all technique it it's it's actually built into our dna it's kind of a, a long topic but uh when you start free diving different genes turn on and you, um, you're able to hold your breath longer and different physiological things happen whenever you're holding your breath underwater than they do when you're holding your breath on land. Um, and so if you, you can take any human and with about 20 minutes of just theory, just talking to them, you can get their breath hold easily to over one minute, no problem, just in 20 minutes of talking. And then with diving, um, within three days, I dove down to uh, 20 meters, which is like 90 feet, something yeah. like that. Uh -huh. And I mean, that's crazy, right? Yeah. Just three days of training, th three hours, four hours a day, and I'm diving to almost 100 foot. Yeah, which is as deep as you want to go with the tank anyway, right? Right, right. And before that, I 
I couldn't dive at all. Like, <laughs> when I arrived in Mallorca in the very beginning, I uh, pickled my outboard engine, right? So I dropped it over into the sea. And I dropped it only maybe four or five meters, like 15 foot. And this was in, uh, this would have been in May. So the water is still very cold in the Mediterranean. So I had to dive down and get it. I didn't have a wetsuit. I didn't have anything. And it was really, really hard. Now, diving to four meters, like, is absolutely nothing. It's so, it's hard to explain how easy it is to go to four meters once you've learned how to free dive. Um, but when I started, I was, like, panicking. I could hold my breath for, like, ten seconds underwater. And now the the deepest I've ever dove was 33 meters, which is over 100 foot. And that was over a two-minute dive. Um, but like I said, that's all just technique. Once you learn the technique, any anybody can learn how to do it. That's what's so amazing about it. It's not. It seems superhuman, but it's actually just built into our DNA. So once you learn the technique, you can do it. And once I learned that, it just it completely changed my relationship with the water. So before that, uh, the the best way I've figured out how to explain it is. It's turned the surface of the water from being a barrier to being a doorway. And when you're living on the boat, uh, of course, you're living on top of the water. Your whole life is like encompassed by water in the sea. But if you don't know how to dive, whether it's free diving or scuba diving, you have a, a strange relationship with the water because you're always on top of it. And going underneath it below the surface is uh, very frightening and dangerous because you don't know how to do it properly but once you learn how to free dive or scuba dive and I, I enjoy both of them there's a lot of people that are very free diving's the best scuba dive. I like both um, but once you learn how to do one or both of those and I think with sailing free diving is the more applicable one is very helpful if your anchor ever gets fouled um, and you can dive down and check your anchor. And sometimes you need to set your anchor properly by hand, if you're depending on where you are. Um, but two, it just changes your relationship to the whole world and how you're experiencing um, life on a sailboat. Because you arrive to a new place, and instead of just checking out the land, you know, you go, let's go, let's see what's underwater too. Um, so that was one of the things that once I learned how to free dive, that really changed my experience. And I would recommend anybody that lives on a boat to learn how to free dive because it, it really does make your life way better, in my opinion. Great advice, yeah. I've never taken any free diving courses, but you make me want to, want to <laughs> take one. And I always swim down and check my anchor. There's never a day that I don't, unless it's really cold. Yeah. Water, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I was in Athens, uh, my father came out to visit just for a week. And... Uh, my dad, like, he knows how to swim, of course, but uh, I don't, I'm pretty sure he doesn't know how to scuba, well, he might know how to scuba dive, I can't remember, but he does, he didn't know how to free dive at all, and he wasn't particularly comfortable in deep water, and this is another thing, is uh, a lot of people aren't comfortable in deep water, but as soon as you put on a wetsuit, first of all, a wetsuit is like armor underwater, you can bump into things, it doesn't matter, because when, when you're wet, your skin becomes so fragile, yeah, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're like, you're like this little tissue paper organism that you bump into a rock, yeah, rock yeah. your skin just tears, but, yeah. but you put on neoprene, and you've got like a shield now, and then you put on the mask, and you can see, and you put a snorkel in, and fins, and like now, if, if you give me 
uh, a wetsuit, fins, a snorkel, and a mask, I can be out in, you know, a meter. Like, yeah. like I can be in waves very, very comfortably. Oh, yeah, because it's a, it's a life raft. I mean, yeah. you're so buoyant. But the problem with, with neoprene is you got to put a lot of weight to go down. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, otherwise you're just so buoyant, so... Um, but yeah, so when my dad visited in Athens, he's in his sixties and we got him diving down to 10 meters within like one day. Okay. And I, I mean, he has, he had no experience at all diving. So it really is actually just built into our DNA and it will change the, change the way that you experience the water for sure. All right. So, uh, you've wintered in different places. You've been living on your boat. You haven't even been back to the States in years, which is, which is amazing. And, uh, do you enjoy soloing single-handed sailing more than with crew now? Or what's your, what's your opinion on that? Well, the longest passage I've done with crew was about four and a half days or four days, something like that. And then the longest passage I've done now solo, excuse me, um, was oh, well to here so seven days and i've done this one then out to the canaries was five days um from italy to uh, spain was like four days so i've done i've done more l- solo sales long distance than i have with crew and for me uh of course having crew in heavy weather is very very helpful it's nice yeah. it's nice just to have an extra set of hands mm-hmm. but when it comes to like the longer passages, I do really enjoy the solo uh, aspect of it to one, be able to disconnect from the internet is very nice. Um, and then two, to be able to completely control and curate what I allow into my brain and allow to influence my brain um, is really special and helpful in a lot of ways. And I look at the longer solo sales as um kind of like retreats like you know have you heard of those uh what do they call it um silent retreats yeah yeah what are those called like vipassanas or whatever sure my daughter's done one of those couple of she really enjoyed the silent retreat yeah yeah kind of like that except of course i i can talk if i want to to myself (laughs) or to the camera and i'll do that like there would be times i'm sitting in the cockpit and i'll just talk to myself and i don't know i'm sure if like somebody was watching from the outside they'd be like this guy's crazy (laughs) but you know, if you can't enjoy your own company, what else are you going to do? You got to like yourself to be a solo <laughs> sailor. So yeah. So what about watches? What about, do you keep a watch at night? What do you do? Do you sleep at night? How do you how do you handle the the watches when you're solo sailing? I found that night watches. Well, there's two difference. You've got coastal solo sailing, then you've got open water uh, solo sailing, and coastal is much more difficult because you've got fishing boats, you've got unlit vessels, you got vessels that are not. In AIS, uh, just a lot more traffic and everything. And so when I'm coastal, I sleep like maximum 30 minutes at a time. And then if I'm coastal, a lot of times I'll sleep in the cockpit. Um, If I'm offshore, then it depends on how far offshore I am and what kind of traffic there is. I've got AIS um, with alarms and whatnot. And uh, then I'll sleep maximum like an hour and a half or two hours at a time but that's not until i've 
I'll start with 30 minutes, um, wake up, check to make sure everything's fine. And once I know I'm out there and there's not going to be anything around, then I'll do an hour and then maybe I'll move up to like maximum two hours. But then I wake up, look around, check the alarms and everything like that. And yeah, then go back to sleep. So when you came down from the Canary Islands, how many ships did you see? The second day, I think, passed two ferries. And then on the third or fourth day, passed two what I believe were fishing vessels, which I was actually very surprised to see them because we were about like 180 miles off the coast of Western Sahara. Uh And, I mean, they were headed towards Western Sahara, so I assume that's where they were going. But it was just those four. So, same with us. We saw a little bit, a few tankers go by, but for two days we didn't see a single boat. Not a single boat, so, yeah. Yeah. You came down from Grand Canary, is that where you came down? I actually came down from Tenerife. Okay. Yeah. I I, I was originally planning on coming from Grand Canaria, but then 20 miles south of Grand Canaria on my first attempt, uh, I had an autopilot failure, and so I was able uh, to beat back to Tenerife, and... um, yeah, I was actually able to sail the whole way to Tenerife, which was great because getting back to Grand Canaria would have been really annoying. And then in Tenerife, I fixed the autopilot and then came down from there. Right. So what was wrong with your autopilot? It turned out just to be um, like a dry joint in a wire. Like there was a small cut in the wire and um, it had corroded a little bit. I don't know exactly how it happened. I think it must have happened like not very long ago um, because that, those wires are so thin that... If yeah. it happened, it had to happen very soon because the corrosion was just eating through it like that. Yeah, okay. All right, anything else you want to talk about? Um, I mean, where, whatever where, you wish. Where are you headed to in the uh, in the Caribbean? Do you have a, a specific island you're headed to? Uh, I think I'll probably land on Barbados, and then from there I'll go down to the Grenadines because I've got um, a friend down there to uh, meet up with him and see that it's actually Rolf and Mariana from uh, 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 Greece, that lockdown in Greece I told you about. Okay. So I'm going to go meet up with them in the the Caribbean and then from there work my way north. All right. Well, my my uh, we're sitting in a hard cockpit and my bum is numb, so I'm going to call it a... Uh, I got cushions sitting behind me. We didn't even put the cushions down. So I'm going to call that an interview and... Uh, Thanks for having me. Hold on here. I'm going to be selling my boat. It's got to the point where my family can't join me on the boat. I've got four grandkids, and uh, my boat is never going to be able to handle my family anymore. My wife is getting to the point where it's difficult for her to get in and out of the boat. She's 70 years old. I'm going to be 70 years old in July. And it's just a lot more work than I can handle at this point in time. It's becoming more and more difficult for me to do all the work on the boat that is required to keep the boat in the shape that I like to keep it in. So I put a web page on the website, which is medsailor.com, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R.com. There's another website called Med Sailors. 
That's not my website. That's a, that's a charter website. But my website is medsailor.com, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R.com. And I put some details on my boat, which is up for sale. If you are interested in possibly buying my boat, I think the best way to really evaluate my boat is to actually sail my boat. And over the next two years, I plan on moving my boat up to Florida or maybe a little north of Florida if I need to get out of the hurricane zone, maybe up to uh, South or North Carolina, wherever it is where I end up out of the hurricane zone and uh, leave it there to sell it. I'm going to next year, I plan on moving it up to Puerto Rico. Currently, it is in Trinidad, so I'm going to be doing the whole length of the Caribbean over the next two summers, no, excuse me, next two winters. Uh, I'll probably start sailing this next winter in January, maybe the middle of January, and sail for two, maybe two and a half months, working my way up to Puerto Rico. And so people that are interested in the boat, I will give the opportunity to join me for a period of time on that trip up it will not be free basically i will sell you an option to buy the boat and if you decide to exercise that option then the value of that option would be applied to the purchase of the boat i'm thinking probably two thousand dollars for uh sailing with me for a week so you can evaluate the boat and that would be that $2,000 would be considered a, uh, an option, a purchase option on buying the boat at the listed price. If you choose to exercise that option, then the price of the option would be applied to the boat. If not, then you lose that. I don't want to have people joining me on the boat just to get a free trip. That's not what I want. If I, if I want to have people for, with a free trip, then it's going to be people I know or friends or families or clients. If you're interested, people that are interested in my boat are a very specific group of people. It's a Lyle Hess design, Bristol Channel Cutter, hull number 71. The hull was built at Sam Moore's Boat Company in California. I finished the boat myself. I took five years to finish it. I did a hell of a job finishing it. I'm proud of it. What sets my boat apart from almost all the other Bristol Channel Cutters that are for sale on the internet is my bulwarks are all teak the problem with sam moore's building his boats in in costa mesa california was he used mahogany for the uh, for the bulwarks and he varnished them and they look great until the varnish starts deteriorating and you have to protect that wood well with teak you do not have to worry about it teak is designed to take anything you can throw at it i've kept the boat when I'm not sailing the boat under a full cover for pretty much its entire life. So the bulwarks are all teak. You don't have to worry about sanding them. At one point in time, I put a sort of a semi-varnish on it called a Cetal. And it started flaking, and I just let it go. I just let the sun burn it all off. And you just can still see little pieces of it around where the sun never hit. But I don't have to worry about painting my boat and maintaining those bulwarks. That by itself is probably worth at least $30,000 because teak is not cheap. And it's much more expensive now than it was when I built it. But it wasn't cheap when I built the boat. So that's a big 
big part of my boat that makes it different from most other boats that you will see for sale is I put an entire teak exterior. The only mahogany on my boat is the hatches, the forward hatch, the middle hatch, and uh, the, the frame around the cockpit hatch. They've been kept in decent shape, in good shape. In fact, I'm having them varnished, stripped down and varnished this winter while I'm away. Uh, the main portholes are unique. They're cast oval portholes with were cast custom cast from patterns which were loaned to me by Larry Party. I have a full wind vane, which is the uh, wind vane that Larry Party designed. I built it myself, but Mike Anderson, my friend in Newport Beach, makes these commercially. I built my own, and it works great. It sailed me all the way across the Atlantic. I hardly touched the tiller all the way across the Atlantic. If you want to be a true blue water sailor, you need to have this wind vane on your boat if you have a Bristol Channel cutter. And if you don't, uh, then you need to have some sort of auto helm or self-steering. So anyway, if you have an interest in this, be sure you reach out to me. Uh, you can write me at Franz number one at medsailor.com franz1 at medsailor.com and we can talk about it i haven't put together my schedule for next winter but i'm going to basically break it up into about six different legs so probably join me for about a week at a time and then move on then the next crew would join me and so forth on on up to puerto rico where i i'm hoping to leave the boat over the next summer. I guess it's not the winter. I'm summering the boat now. The website for sailing in the Mediterranean and beyond is www.medsailor.com. Again, medsailor.com. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f***. What the f*** gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. <laughs>